Welcome to this special edition of St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. This hour, we're listening to highlights from last week's STL Storytelling Live event. It took place Thursday at the Missouri Athletic Club. A total of six St. Louis-based authors and historians spoke. They celebrated local history with stories that ran the gamut from funny to moving. Longtime St. Louis radio personality and freelance writer Bill Cleveland moderated the evening. Cleveland is the author of A Hundred Things to Do in America Before You Die, and he does a lot of traveling around the country in search of great stories. He kicked off the evening with this story about a trip that stands out from his childhood. The earliest road trip that I can think of, at least I had some sort of a story behind it, I was probably eight or nine years old, and um, back in, I guess this would have been in the 80s, um, and b- back then, I was a very charitable soul. I was a part of a, a church group and did nice things for people. And I don't do as much as that these days as I should, I guess. Um, but back then, we were part of a little church group, and we would travel uh, around the community and do nice, nice things for people. We would, you know, help someone who needed their leaves raked. Or we would, you know, if there was some building that had flood damage or something, we'd go in, we would help uh, clean up and do things like that. And so um, uh, what we would do is we'd get in this van. It was a, the church van sat about, I don't know, 15, 18 people. Uh, it was in the 80s, so nobody wore a seatbelt. It was just free, free loving. And so um, now what you need to know about this particular story uh, are the people, first of all, the guy driving the van. Um, and his name was uh, Mr. Kemper. And so uh, Mr. Kemper is driving the church van. Uh, next to me, and I'm, I'm in the front row. You follow me so far? Like, like five of these big, big seats. I'm in the front row behind Mr. Kemper, who was driving. Uh, Mrs. Kemper, a uh, lovely woman who just passed away uh, several months ago, uh, she was sitting next to me in, in the seat uh, that ever drove. So we're going along, and the weather is horrible. It, it's absolutely horrible. It's a torrential downpour, and uh, we're driving along Highway 70, and Mr. Kemper has to slam on his brakes. Uh, of the church van to avoid hitting someone who had stopped up ahead. So slammed on the church brakes, uh, on the brakes of the church van. A few seconds later, a car coming up behind us was not able to stop and slammed, don't get ahead of me, uh, (laughs) slammed into the church van. And then another car slammed into that one, and that one slammed into the church van. So, of course, we're all flung around, and everybody is I'm eight, nine years old, you know, so I'm trying to take it all in. You Obviously, you check to make sure you're okay. Whatever. And so, uh, but I look up, and, um, and I look at the dashboard of, of the church van, and I notice that uh, Mr. Kemper's teeth had flown out of his mouth. <laughs> now... I don't know how many of you have had that experience. <laughs> Maybe on the ride here tonight. But as an eight or a nine-year-old kid, seeing a man's teeth fly out of his mouth and land on the dashboard, it's pretty traumatic. So as a young kid, obviously, what do we do when we have something traumatic? We look for an adult for some consolation to, to talk to you, right? So who's the nearest adult next to me is uh, the lovely Mrs. Kemper. So I look over to Mrs. Kemper as if to say, you know, why, why are your husband's teeth on the dashboard? <laughs> and I look over, and um, Mrs. Kemper has lost her hair. She, her hair flew off of her head, and, and I, 
I, I, I don't know. I didn't know any of this stuff. And honest to God, it's a wonder I got back in a vehicle ever. And, uh, but, but, uh, the, she was a lovely lady. He was a, he, he was a, a great guy. And, um, and, and, and like I said, she just passed away several months ago. I guess it was earlier this year. And, um, at, at the funeral, I went up and, and talked to her daughter because this is a pretty classy thing to do. I told that story. And, and I, I and, and she was, and I said, because this was a while, I'm, I'll be 40 years old, um, uh, next year. And I, so it's been a while since this has happened. And I said, did that really happen? Because you, you tell yourself these things. And she said, oh, yeah, totally happened. And, uh, but I, I, if she's listening, I apologize for broadcasting this story to the masses. Um, but it's honestly, it's all I got. That was local writer and radio personality Bill Clevelin recalling one of his earliest road trips. I'm Sarah Fenske, and you're listening to a special edition of St. Louis on the Air. We're airing highlights from last week's STL Storytelling Live event. The next storyteller is Carol Shepley. She's the author of Movers and Shakers, Scalawags and Suffragettes, Tales from Bellefontaine Cemetery, as well as St. Louis, an illustrated timeline. Well, it's hard to compete with losing your teeth and your hair, but (laughs) here we go. So um, I'm going to talk about how, where ideas come from. So my book is called St. Louis, an Illustrated Timeline, and Josh Stevens, the publisher of Reedy Press, asked me to write a book for the 250th anniversary of of the founding of St. Louis. So I read every single book about St. Louis history, and they were so boring. You know, I love St. Louis, and but I had to make myself read these books because it was about bond issues and mayors. I mean, of course, there was the founding and the Civil War and so forth. So I was thinking of things that I remember from St. Louis. So who here remembers the killer driller? Glennon Engelman, the dentist, <laughs> he for hire, oh, <laughs> he was a killer for hire. He got a thrill. You know, he filled people's teeth during the week, and on the weekends, he went out and took a sledgehammer and killed ladies' husbands, and then they would get the insurance. And Twice he married the widow, so he not only got the fee, he got the insurance money too. And then another favorite, a friend who loves crime, was uh, Nellie Munch. And she's actually my favorite character in the whole book. So she was from the 1930s, before my time. But she was a society dame by day. She had red hair and wore white gloves and went to luncheons and tea parties. And by night, she hung out in roadhouses with gangsters. (laughs) And she was married to, she really liked doctors. She was married. Married to one doctor, having an affair with a second doctor, and kidnapped a third doctor. (laughs) And when she was caught, immediately almost, she wasn't too smart as a convict, um, she was put on trial, and the trial became part of the basis for the musical Chicago, because in order, well, her lover kind of didn't like her anymore, and trying to get him back and get his sympathy and get the sympathy of the crowd, 
every, over the nine months of the trial, she patted her stomach more and more each day, and then when it was time for the uh, baby to be delivered, she adopted the baby of an unmarried Irish housemaid. And then, and then were all these pictures in the paper of our gift from God. And then the housemaid saw this and was like, hey, that's not your gift from God. That's my gift from God. So she got off the first time, but after the gift from God was exposed, she served some time. <laughs> and then, you know, um, there were other stories that gave more resonance. I remember when I was little, you know, my mother getting tears in her eyes when the former mayor of St. Louis, Raymond Tucker, died. You know, and there's a Tucker Boulevard, so he is important. But, you know, I thought, well, why, why was he so much more? There are so many mayors. What was so great about Raymond Tucker? Well, and this is something else I remember both my parents talking about. St. Louis is an industrial city in the Mississippi Valley. It was, was one of the most polluted cities in the nation. I mean, Mom said you'd clean the house in the morning and it would be covered by, with soot at night. And, um, and, and, then, and also the children were coughing. It was terrible. And they kept trying since the 1890s to clean it up, but nothing got done. But Raymond Tucker was an engineer at Washington University, so he had the smarts, but he also had what it takes to get something done. He had charisma. He went on the radio. He talked to crowds, he got on the newspaper, and um, and also he enlisted the ladies, you know, because the ladies didn't want dirty houses, they didn't want their family coughing, and ladies get things done, you know, we all know that. <laughs> and, and first, in 1937, they passed some laws that made industries use, they were burning soft coal because it was cheaper, and it was from Illinois, it was close, but hard coal would clean everything up. So, but, so they passed an ordinance for, to make factories stop using the soft coal, but they, and then they suggested that people not use it. But, of course, it costs more, so they weren't going to do it. Then, in 1939, they had something called the darkness at noon. For four days in a row, it was so polluted, it was like night. You couldn't see across the street. So then they really got stuff going. And in 1939, they passed an ordinance, and they, everybody had to burn hard coal. And 250 cities from across the country came to see how we did it and copied us because, you know, we had it the worst, and now we had it the best. We had the way to do it. And then, you know, other ways, you know, ideas just sort of come to you. When I was in college, I took a small seminar in African-American literature. And my teacher was, you know, there were like eight people in the class. And my teacher, Alice Walker, you know, you became close. And um, she found out I was from St. Louis, and she said, I have a really good friend from St. Louis, and she's just published a memoir. It has the most wonderful title, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Wow. And then about 10 years later, she herself published a novel, which won the national... When she said, I'm working on a novel myself, and she published it, and it's called The Color Purple. Wow. <laughs> and so then I put Maya Angelou in my book. 
because, and then, I mean, I just recently was rereading that wonderful book, and, you know, it was terrible what happened to her in St. Louis, and if you don't remember, I'll tell you later, <laughs> you know. But um, also, this is the second edition of my book. The first edition burned up in the Reedy Press warehouse fire, and so after the fire, Josh said, we can just reprint your book, or would you like to do a second edition? And I said, oh, a second edition, because just as the first was coming out, Ferguson was happening. So I spent months reading every newspaper from August 9th, 2014, for about a year and a half. And every Post-Dispatch tried to read a lot of, of you know, uh, Washington Post and New York Times, and there are a few books about it, you know, to try and wrap my mind around what happened in Ferguson which is a terrible thing and has exposed a terrible situation in America. And, and, but with Forward Through Ferguson, I hope that like with Raymond Tucker when we were one of the most polluted cities in the country and then became an example of you know, the bright shining light, I hope with Forward Through Ferguson we will be able to make great strides. We've already started and become the first city that can achieve some kind of racial equality. That was author Carol Shepley speaking at last Thursday's storytelling event at the Missouri Athletic Club. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly for more stories from local authors and historians. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to this special edition of St. Louis on the Air. We're listening to storytellers who spoke at last week's STL Storytelling Live event, sponsored by St. Louis Public Radio, the Missouri Athletic Club, and Reedy Press. Up next is Amanda Doyle, a St. Louis transplant and ardent city resident. She's the author of several books, including St. Louis Sound and Standing Up for Civil Rights in St. Louis, among others. Uh, Well, have you ever been in a place where you were not supposed to be? Uh, About 24 hours ago, I was in a place I definitely wasn't supposed to be. I was at middle school open house in the ninth grade, advanced ninth grade math room where my sixth grader is taking math, and I was standing in front of a woman who was wildly excited about factoring polynomials. (laughs) That is a place I had no business being, I can assure you. Um, and to be honest, there's probably someone in the life of everyone in this room who would tell you that you shouldn't be where you are right now, downtown St. Louis. There are many people who would say not to be here. Obviously, we all resist that, and we're glad for it. Um, I want to tell you about a time in April 2006 when I was another place. I had no business being whatsoever, literally and uh, symbolically probably, and that was at the foot of a 20-foot aluminum extension ladder, (laughs) trying to encourage my friend who had a power drill to go ahead and climb on up the ladder uh, and drill into the side of a historic brick building that neither one of us owned or lived in. I was trying to talk her into doing it, not myself. (laughs) And uh, this was in Old North St. Louis. We were on the side of the building where Crown Candy Kitchen is located. And although it does not sound like it from that initial description, being there was the result of months of planning that we had put into it. We just hadn't gotten to the part about going up the ladder. (laughs) Seemed really, the nitty-gritty kind of eluded us. 
Um, Old North St. Louis, to me, has been a really fascinating place to me ever since I came to live in St. Louis. I moved here um, when I married my husband, St. Louis boy. They have a way of sucking you in, never letting you go, and we're here 22 years later. But to me, Old North um, symbolizes simultaneously a lot of the dichotomies about St. Louis and a lot of the things about St. Louis that we that we can observe individually in a lot of other places, I think it all comes together there. And by that I mean um, North St. Louis was established as an independent village from the city of St. Louis when it first started, so there's a strong independence there. Um, it has been a booming, overstuffed neighborhood full of families, full of immigrants. It's been a place where there are thriving business districts, it's been a place where you couldn't pack another single person into some of the two, four, six-family flats. It's been a place that's been left behind um, by a lot of people who thought there were better places for them to be. It's been a place where there are neighborhood cranks. I know nobody knows anything about that in your neighborhood. And there have been people always who have been hopeful and who have um, had visions for what they wanted to see happen there. So I've always found Old North to be really kind of a microcosm of a lot of the things emblematic about St. Louis. Because of that, back to the end of the ladder, there we were. Um, so my friend Maddie and I had an idea. We both shared this interest in city neighborhoods and wild hair projects that um, like a whole lot of things before I had kids seemed to make a lot more sense to spend my time on. This was one of them. Let's, let's do something crazy. So uh, we had conceived a project to bring the arts and our love of poetry to this neighborhood that we also loved. Literally, my friend had a dream, and in her dream, she saw words floating in the sky. i do not sure where that came from. But she told me this dream, and we had been trying to think of a project to work on together. We both like to just make things up and do them to get out of the house. So we started imagining that we would have um, a poem printed on something, signs, banners, we didn't know what. And we would put them throughout a neighborhood and have um, a path that people could follow. So you could start at the beginning of a map. We were going to make a map. That was part of it as well. And you would start at the beginning. And by moving through the neighborhood, looking for the next spot in the poem, you would eventually read this entire poem, and you would also have an experience of being in a place. So um, this seemed like a great idea to us. And also, we came up with a really catchy name for it. We called it Word Up. <laughs> I mean, to me, if there's a name, we're doing it, right? It's a good gimmick. I don't care how great of an idea it is. <laughs> Um, so we, we thought about Old North because of the, the reasons I mentioned before and because we also knew a lot of different people there. So there um, is an organization called the Old North St. Louis Restoration Group, which is a neighborhood interest group of homeowners and renters there. Um, and our friend Sean Thomas was there and down for anything. We knew um, a friend who had been running poetry and writing workshops for children in the neighborhood who we thought we could work with as well. We knew a lot of people who owned businesses in the neighborhood. We knew there were longtime residents who were interested in seeing things happen. All of this came together um, with this idea of what if we could make a pedestrian and bike-friendly tour of Old North St. Louis. Um, when you say this out loud to people standing in line, like at Crown Candy Kitchen, you get a lot of weird looks. 
would you be interested in taking a bike through the neighborhood to read poetry? No, I would be interested in getting a malt, but thank you. Carry on. Luckily for us, uh, we did find some people who were interested, and we worked with residents in the neighborhood and these kids who were doing writing workshops to select a poem. We wanted it to mean something um, short, obviously. You can't hang that many pieces of vinyl in a neighborhood, and something that would resonate. And we ended up with a poem by Langston Hughes, who is a Missouri poet, obviously worldwide known, but from Missouri. And the poem itself just speaks to sort of being in touch with the river, being nearby nature, being connected to family, all things that people in the neighborhood told us were important to them. We talked a class at Webster University into doing graphic design for us to actually produce these large vinyl banners. We had 11. They were about 10 feet high each. And then we started knocking on doors to find out who would let us drill into their brick. (laughs) People were surprisingly receptive. Um, We started at Crown Candy, and um, Andy, one of the owners, was like, yeah, great. Now? Are we doing this now? No, we'll be back. Uh, but that was so. Then we had him. So then, anywhere else we could go, we could say, "Well, we're starting at Crown Candy, and they're on board." Um, Sean helped us find other places in the neighborhood that seemed like likely candidates. Uh, we we had one abandoned building that we used the side of. We used the side of a retirement home. The the best to me, the best find was a family that lived in a, a newly renovated house on North Market Street. And they were so excited, and they wanted to know if they could pick out um, the stanza that was going to go on their building. So we tried to make it work. They wanted, I'll read you the poem at the end, they wanted the one about um, the grandmother, because they lived as an extended family all together. They were very into it. Another incident with the latter happened at that same house. We showed up, this beautiful, generous, um, extremely devout Christian family, and by now I had figured out that the best thing to do was send my husband up the ladder. So we had figured out how to work the ladder along the way. We had the ladder propped on the side of the building. We had not figured out that you have to lock it. I don't know how many people (laughs) have ever been an extension ladder. So we threw this ladder up. I handed him a drill and a banner. We sent him up. And when he got to the top, it started kind of dominoing down right away. And he said a lot of words. (laughs) And I said, they are very Christian. Please be quiet. And he said, I could have died. And I was like, but we want to use their wall. So this has occasionally come up in subsequent years um, that I was more concerned about him not being profane in front of these friendly people. We were not always welcome with completely open arms. Um, There were many people who asked us, what in the bleepity bleep were we doing? More times than I can count during the times we were in the neighborhood scoping out our locations and hanging things and trying to talk to people, um, police officers would stop. And invariably what they would say to myself and my friend, both white women, is, are you lost? Why are you here? Even, why are you in this neighborhood? This was not an infrequent comment that we got. But Above all, people did really receive it very well and, um, and came to really feel an ownership of it. The retirement home was the last banner that we hung, and there was a group of residents who in the afternoon would sit out on the terrace every day. Does anybody remember the Muppet Show? The two guys who sit in the balcony, Waldorf and Statler. We had our whole terrace of Waldorfs and Statlers, who I, they, probably, I, they probably thought we could hear them. They would 
sit out and watch us and say, you think they're going to fall? I don't think they know what they're doing. Definitely they're going to fall. This is so stupid. I mean, it, was, it went on and on. It was very entertaining for everyone involved. In the end, um, it turned out to be better than we could have hoped for. And when all of the banners were hung, we had a debut of the Word Up Poetry Project at the Old North St. Louis House Tour. We handed out maps. People were able to go on a self-guided tour of the neighborhood and read the poem. And at the very end of the summer, we had a culminating event where we invited some of the students who had helped us choose the poem to read their writing. We had musicians from the neighborhood come and perform. Um, Everything coming from from a dream that was uh, really inspirational for us. And I think the whole point of me telling that story, besides getting to tell on my husband, is that there are a lot of places in St. Louis where people will tell you that you should not be, that you should not go. Neighborhoods, schools, faith communities, um, across political lines, all kinds of things like that. But in my experience in St. Louis and my 20-plus years of being here and writing about neighborhoods, I've found that when I have had the courage to go into those places and I've taken the time to build the relationships that allow me to be invited into those places, that's when I have seen by far the most hope for the future of this city and the most possibility for transformation. I'd like to read you the poem, if I may. I didn't memorize it, I'm sorry. This is called Fulfillment by Langston Hughes. The earth meaning, like the sky meaning, was fulfilled. We got up and went to the river, touched silver water, laughed and bathed in the sunshine, Day became a bright ball of light for us to play with. Sunset, a yellow curtain. Night, a velvet screen. The moon, like an old grandmother, blessed us with a kiss. And sleep took us both in, laughing. Thank you. That was storyteller Amanda Doyle, one of the participants in a recent STL Storytelling Live event, talking about her experiences in Old North St. Louis. I'm Sarah Fenske, and you're listening to a special edition of St. Louis on the Air. Our next storyteller is Ed Wheatley, author of The St. Louis Browns, The Story of a Beloved Team. He's also the president of the St. Louis Browns Historical Society and Fan Club, and he starts his story by discussing what he loves about keeping the history of the St. Louis Browns alive. What I love doing most is going to retirement homes and taking people back in time with the stories and the books and also letting the young generation learn and remember what were these times and for these people who, who rooted for the Browns. I mean, first of all, I guess, hey, they were losers. Gosh, I mean, they lost a thousand more games than they won. But, you know, they were the lovable losers before they were the Cubs. But the thing about it was, you got to remember the people who were alive when the Browns were playing, which was the first half of the 1900s, 1902 to 1953, they were here. Those were some of the worst times in our country's history for these people who lived. I mean, Think about it. They went through the Great Depression. I mean, you, you had to worry about, did you have food? You know, what could you afford? What could you do? There really wasn't the opulence we have today. You know, you go out in Chesterfield and that strip mall out there with all those restaurants, they were packed. You know, people didn't go out to eat. They worried if they had enough to even put on their kitchen table. And they lived through the poverty of the Depression. And then what came after the Depression? World War II, right? All the rationing the shortages, the surp, you know, surplus issues, men going off to war, many not coming back. 
Those were the tough times these people lived in. But you know, there was one good, every time we go and we talk to people, you know what lights their eyes? Talking about baseball. And it's, those were the happy and fun memories that people have. You know, there wasn't television, there wasn't video games, iPhones. They had baseball. And that is what kept them going. And Franklin Roosevelt, in January of 1942, shortly after Pearl Harbor, said, there will be baseball. We're not going to shut it down as they did in World War I. I want people to work hard. It's going to take long hours in the factories to win this uh, two-front war. But I want everybody to come home at night and just sit down and listen to baseball with their family and relax. And that's what brought us uh, night baseball. He pushed for it and says there's got to be nights because people are going to be working all day. So when you start talking about baseball with people and you fill the book with memories of pictures and you fill the book with advertising, that was one, something that was very, very important to me, to have advertising so that people would remember, like, okay, guys, all right, let's see saying, how many have had a Grease Dick beer or a Hyde Park beer? You know, the big signs on Sportsman's Park. Or, you know, try explaining to young kids today when you give these talks are gem blades. You know, how you used to have to take the, the blade and put it into the razor and shave, you know? All these things that were adorned on Sportsman's Park's walls and in the scorecards. And that's what we loaded this book up with. So, again, it was like... I'm remembering the good part of when I was young. And that's why I go to all these retirement homes, several a month. And, you know, we do this pro bono. We, you know, we just want people to have that fun. Because the thing of it is, there were fun stories. I mean, the Browns' history and stories, like I said, the, the uh, first film we made was the St. Louis Browns, the story that baseball forgot. You know, here we, went, we had this book that was getting national awards and recognition, and our PBS teams came to us and said, we need to make a movie out of that, you know, and I'm thinking like, I had Bob Costas help me, and he did the forward of the first book. I got John Hamm to do the, the uh, narration in the, in the first movie, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I got to find something and write a song and maybe have Lady Gaga or something, and I get a triple crown. But, uh, so we, we put this together, and it was the this, this story, and people, whether we're giving talks on the Browns, our book signing events, I mean, it was all of a sudden, hundreds and hundreds of people were coming, and people would come up and, you know, this story and that story. You know, I remember this. I remember that. At the same time, we're telling stories like, you know, Dizzy Dean. You know, Dizzy Dean was a you know, great cardinal. And you talk about, hey, the day Dizzy Dean, when he was with the Browns and some smart alec, you go, Dizzy Dean was with the Cardinals. He was never with the Browns. Yeah, he was. One day. Dizzy, <laughs> Dizzy was a longtime announcer. You know, he had been out of baseball for six years in the last several years of his career. If you remember when he got hurt in the All-Star game, he broke his toe off Luke Appling, and he had to retire. He, was, he did do uh, a few years with the Cubs. wasn't much, but, you know, he hadn't pitched in a long time. Six years in the booth. I mean, and there's a side story of how the St. Louis school teachers wanted to fire him, and they were putting a campaign to get him off the air because he was teaching the kids in St. Louis, like, Al Lamaki, he slutted into third base. And then all the kids in school are talking about slutting into third base, right? And he had that twang of, you know, well, you didn't really know where Dizzy was because Dizzy just, you know, you ask him one day, he was from Mississippi. You ask him another day, he's from Texas. One day, he's from Arkansas, Missouri. That was Dizzy. But anyway, Dizzy was not a homer at the announcing. And he would tell it like it was, as an example, like, this pitcher can't hit the side of a barn. You know, let's get my grandma out here. She could pitch better than this guy, you know. And Dizzy was starting to put on the girth, 
uh, as you saw him in the latter days, I can go out there and pitch and win. Well, finally, Dizzy, shut up and see what you can do. Well, Dizzy being Dizzy, what's he do? He goes out and throws it a shutout. And then, what's he do? He gets up and hits a ball to right field. And what does Dizzy do in typical Dizzy fashion? He doesn't stop at first base. He keeps running and gets a double. And he slides in kind of funny and he wrenches his back and starts uh, um, tightening up a little later in the game. His wife, Pat, screaming, get that bum off the mound. He's going to kill himself. So Dizzy finally, finally comes out of the game. But he pitched a shutout. I mean, that's the stuff that is a rider. He didn't have to make any of this stuff up. The thing about the Browns, this, this uh, lackadaisical, fun-filled team, they are filled with stories. I mean, you all have heard the story of Eddie Goodell, the three-foot-seven-inch guy who came up to pinch hit, right? I mean, in all the world's going, what's he doing, you know? I mean, how do you pitch to him? And, you know, in, it was August 19, 1951, Bill Veck. I mean, Bill Veck was the P.T. Barnum of baseball. I mean, you come to a Browns game, you never knew what was going to happen. You know, some days... The game, ninth inning, is over, opens up the gates. And here comes elephants, giraffes, bears. You get to see the Browns game, then you get to see a circus. So the Browns history is full of this, and that's why we wrote it. And that's why it became beloved in a movie. We had Emmy Awards. We got picked by the Cooperstown um, Hall of Fame, and we had to go up there and take our film. And it created the second film, which premiered two weeks ago, where the fans' memories, because... From them, I wrote the second film with, uh, with, with our Channel 9 cohorts. And that's what the beauty of what one book can do. It can take people back in time. And that's where we've taken these people in retirement homes, people with dementia. They remember this stuff. And that's the beauty, how you can turn a whole affair around by just simply writing a book and fill it with these true stories. Thank you. That was Ed Wheatley, president of the St. Louis Browns Historical Society and Fan Club, remembering St. Louis baseball past. We need to take another quick break, but we'll return for more stories in a moment. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back to this special edition of St. Louis on the Air. This hour, we're listening to highlights from last week's STL Storytelling Live event at the Missouri Athletic Club. A total of six St. Louis-based authors and historians spoke. That includes Calvin Riley, who is the founder and director of the George B. Vachon African American History Museum. In this presentation, he describes how that ambitious project came about. When I first talked about opening a museum, people didn't take me seriously. He thought I was joking. Uh, I was even told by one of the St. Louis historians, he came to my museum to put me in one of his books, and he said, uh, you can't open a museum by yourself. And I looked at him, I said, Dr. such and such, I've done that. And he said, oh, yes, you have. <laughs> and so, because it didn't make sense, why you want me in your book if you didn't feel this way? Well, let me tell you about how this came about. I am a retired educator an antique dealer. So uh, while I was teaching, I was also buying and selling antiques, and I was collecting antiques. And I, ke- I collected African-American artifacts. A lot of people thought I was collecting cookie jars and salt and pepper shakers. But no, I was selling those. What, what, I, was, what I was collecting was historical artifacts from people's homes, people's attics, basements, and I, I didn't know what I was going to do with them, but I kept them. 
Well, back in 2006, a friend of mine bought a home on West Bell. And he called me and he said, well, you like old stuff. There's a lot of old stuff in this house. If you don't uh, come over here and look at it, I'm going to throw it in a dumpster. Well, I went over to the house and looked at it, going through some trunks in the basement. I was pulling out some stuff that was saying Vashon. And my wife said, I wonder if this has anything to do with Vashon High School. And I said, well, I don't know. Well, we did a little research and found out that it was the family home of Mr. John Bar Vashon. And a lot of people said, well, who is Mr. Vashon? Mr. Mr. Vashon was the first graduate of Overland University in Ohio, graduated about 1847 as a lawyer. But he he couldn't practice law because he was black. So he traveled the country trying to find work. He helped start Howard University. He was the first black professor there. He set up their law school. Howard could not afford him. He went to New York and became the first African-American lawyer in the state of New York. Then he went to Alcorn, Mississippi, and he was teaching mathematics and French. He caught yellow fever. He died. He's buried on the campus now as I speak. Well, in 1880, the African-American parents in St. Louis were protesting. They wanted their children to have African-American teachers because for role models. They all had all-white teachers. Well, Oscar Warren at Sumner High School contacted Alcorn. John Vashon moved his family here in about 1880 uh, in St. Louis. And he became principal of color school number 10. And he became principal of Delaney School, which is on, in South St. Louis. Well, uh, so I got those artifacts, and then uh, I took them over to the Missouri History Museum. And Ms. Dice told me, she said, this is a gold mine. It's the greatest find of an African-American family from the 19th century. And so a friend of mine worked for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, Norm Parrish. He's in Chicago now. He said, he said, let me put this in the newspaper for you. This is news. And I said, okay. And he did. And after the news story published, a few days later he called me. And he said, there are people who want to talk to you about the Vashon artifacts. May I give out your phone number? I said, yes. Okay, it was Howard University. It was Overland University. It was the Smithsonian, Philadelphia. The Vashon, they were from Philadelphia. And Clark University in Atlanta. It was St. Louis Public Schools uh, archives. They all wanted to talk to me about buying the Vashon artifacts. They didn't know what I was going to do with them. So I had almost made a deal with the Smithsonian. They wanted to buy them. But they were only interested in John, uh, George Vashon artifacts. They didn't want the family artifacts. They just wanted uh, George Vashon artifacts. Well, the, the Mount City Bar Association called me, some, some lawyer, I don't remember who it was. He said, I heard you're going to sell the Vashon artifacts. And I said, yes. He said, well, we think you should keep them in St. Louis because the Vashon family did so much uh, in the St. Louis community during the turn of the century. And I talked to him, and that's okay. And uh, talked to my wife about it and talked to some friends about it. And somebody said to me, well, why don't you open a museum? Well, I don't have any museum experience. I'm a teacher. And so uh, I started doing a quest for knowledge. I flew across the country and talked to museum curators and managers and antique dealers, uh, many antique dealers 
uh, who were interior decorators. Uh, they were friends of mine. And so uh, one day I was in old North St. Louis. Heard a lot of talk about that tonight. I saw, uh, my wife saw a mansion on St. Louis Avenue. She said, that would make a nice museum. And I said, what? And she pointed to a building. A friend of mine said, I know who owns it, and he wants to sell it. So he got me in touch with the owner. We made a deal. I bought it. Retired from St. Louis Public Schools. Took me two years to rehab it. And now uh, we've been open for four years now. Just had my fourth year anniversary uh, last Saturday, a week ago. Well, uh, that's uh, pretty much uh, what we do. We tell stories of early St. Louisans living in segregated communities, their successes, their failures, what they had to go through. And I tell the stories using their real artifacts. It's nothing fictitious, nothing made up. Is the real artifact speaks, and they speak out loud, tell you how they lived and what was going on. And uh, so uh, if you had not been to the Vashon Museum, you are missing a treasure. It's a treasure chest. It's, it's full of St. Louis African-American history of doctors, lawyers, funeral home owners, other business owners, uh, entertainers. Uh, St. Louis uh, was known uh, uh, for its inter entertainment district down in Mill Creek, in Mill Creek Valley. That's down Market Street, down by St. Louis Union Station. A lot of people don't know that was an African-American community. Um, so I think uh, if you have not been there, you should come and see it. It would blow you away. And I think you would enjoy it. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell the story. I didn't know I was going to be in the museum business. I had no idea that my collection of antiques would be in the, uh, uh, get me in the museum business. And uh, I'm told I stepped on a lot of toes by doing that. They didn't think I could do it. But that's, you can do anything you want to do. And I teach my students that when I taught. I see one of my former parents, and she don't even know me, but I know her. I taught one of her daughters. But anyway... Uh, I used to tell my students that you can be whatever you want to be. So if you have not been there at the Jarrah Vashon Museum, please visit us. Thank you. That was Kelvin Riley, a retired educator and antiques dealer turned museum director, talking about the George B. Vashon African American History Museum. I'm Sarah Fenske, and you're listening to a special edition of St. Louis on the Air. We're airing highlights from last week's STL Storytelling Live event. The next and final storyteller is Cameron Collins. His books include Lost Treasures of St. Louis and St. Louis Brews, as well as the upcoming volume, Scenes of Historic Wonder. Uh, so I'm the anchor man tonight. I'm the last guy. So I'm going to tell a good story about two wonderful people I met on my journey to writing this book called Lost Treasures of St. Louis. Uh, but I got to give you a little background of my own before I get to Ralph and Agnes, who you'll meet soon. Uh, my journey to write uh, Lost Treasure started back in 2015 when I got an email from Josh Stevens at Reedy Press. And at the time, I had been writing this quirky little uh, drinking blog with a history problem uh, about St. Louis. And I was a, I am a 
devoted uh, disciple of, of St. Louis history. I think St. Louis is the most significant uh, historic American city. Uh, thank you, William B. Itner, for designing this wonderful building. Um, so, and in, in Josh suggested that I write this book uh, about Lost Treasures of St. Louis, which, if you are familiar with the book, contains more than 400 restaurants, uh, drive-in theaters, sports venues, Phil the Gorilla, all these things in St. Louis that are no longer with us. It's like a walk down memory lane. Uh, and I think my first thing I said to Josh was, I'm not from St. Louis. Uh, I grew up in a little city named Elmira, New York, in upstate New York. Anybody know Elmira? Hooray, there's a couple. Uh, our claim to fame is we have Mark Twain. He is buried there. So anyway, fast forward to 2015, uh, and I was in Josh uh, Josh's office talking about lost treasures, and all of a sudden I realized that I had to write a book about 400 things that I had never seen with my own eyes. And how does somebody do that? And uh, there were a few lost treasures that I was familiar with. Um, the uh, Admiral was a casino. I didn't know that it was a, a wonderful cruise ship. Uh, the Parkmore was a diner, not a drive-in. Certainly nobody told me about the Coral Court, <laughs> the no-tell motel. Uh, and there were all these treasures, and I had to go out and research what these places meant to people. And it opened up one of the most wonderful experiences of my life because I went to talk to St. Louisans who remembered going to Miss Hullings on a day where you visited Famous Bar, uh, where you went to Noah's Ark out in St. Charles, or even if you went to some place like Forest Park Highlands or the Elvis is Alive Museum. Anybody remember that weird place? Yeah? It smelled like chicken. It was very... So anyway, uh, I was very fortunate uh, to be invited to uh, a meeting of veterans of the Battle of the Bulge in Afton. And, you know, there weren't many of them there, but there was this one guy named Ralph, and he, he looks good. Ralph is still around, uh, and his wife, Agnes. And Ralph and Agnes told me that they were sweethearts in St. Louis <clears throat> prior to the war starting. And uh, when Ralph enlisted in the Army and was getting shipped out, uh, his girlfriend, Agnes, who was sitting there right next to him when I was talking, uh, said, I will send you a letter every week, and I will kiss the back of the envelope, with, and you'll be able to uh, smell my lipstick way over in Europe. And Ralph even said he remembered sitting on a pile of manure in Belgium, and he could still smell uh, Agnes's lipstick on the back of the envelope. So Ralph, uh, the hero he was, goes and fights in the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, the war ends, and Ralph, uh, unfortunately, is required to stay in Europe until, you know, and keep things tidy while uh, a lot of other GIs went home. And one day a letter arrived for him, uh, and his worst fears came true because there was no kiss on the back of the envelope. 
And Ralph opened up that letter and read that Agnes had found somebody else and was getting married back in St. Louis. And so I'm sitting there trying to put this all together because Ralph and Agnes are sitting in front of me. <laughs> and I think I even said something like, what, what's going on, you guys? Like, how, how? And they told me that uh, in the 1960s, they bumped into each other again. And when they got to talking, they both learned that their spouses had passed away. Of course, Ralph, being the war hero he was, got a few dates really easily when he got back to St. Louis. And, uh, and so when they learned this, Ralph asked her on a date uh, on the spot. He said, will you go out to dinner with me tonight? And she said yes. And Ralph took her to a restaurant called the Top of the Tower. Anyone remember that building? It's still up there. Uh, it even used to have apartments in it. It's 10 stories, cylindrical on Lewis and Clark, I believe. Back in the day, it was a, it was a hopping place. You would see limos driving, dropping people off. There were, you know, people would go there before prom. Uh, it was known for its spinning salad, uh, but also it was known for having a very dark atmosphere. Like it was hard to see, you know, candle lit. And uh, on that date that Ralph took Agnes to, in the top of the tower, uh, he pulled out an engagement ring and asked her to marry him on the spot. And that top of the tower, which is in my book, has become a very cherished, special place for them. And uh, just like many of the others, treasures. And, and as I was saying, that really was a different form of history for me to enjoy because it wasn't dates and battles and things happening somewhere. It was somebody saying, this was a pivotal moment in my life that happened right here. So it was very special. And thank you very much. That was local author and blogger Cameron Collins, the final storyteller who spoke at last week's STL Storytelling Live event. We want to thank Reedy Press, the Missouri Athletic Club, and our St. Louis Public Radio colleagues for helping make that event and this hour of highlights possible. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.